So Money episode 1230, Ask Farnoosh. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. It's Ask Farnoosh Friday. I wanted to uh, elaborate a little bit on my vacation. I guess you can call it a vacation. You know, parents with small children, it's really a trip. And now I need a vacation from my vacation. We took our family down to Bethany Beach, Delaware. And it was a reminder to me just how much I'm not a beach person. And At the age of 41, I am willing to now say this out loud because I feel like we live in a culture where if you admit that you're not a beach person, at least I feel like in my circles, there's this, I don't know, this reaction people have to you, which is like, oh, maybe you're not, you're not a relaxed person. You don't appreciate nature. You're high maintenance because the beach is very low maintenance, right? You go there, you got to just accept that there's going to be sand everywhere in your hair, in your bathing suit. Um, Maybe I could tolerate that when I was in my 20s, but now toting two small children, worrying about their sun exposure, worrying about their exposure to the waves, uh, it's like a nightmare for me. I cannot enjoy myself at the beach. And the first day we arrived, my son and my husband went straight for the water. My daughter, on the other hand, was a little like on the fence. And ultimately, she decided as well that the beach was not for her. And I have to give her credit because she immediately identified this and said, I don't want to go back to the beach. I'm done with the beach. And I said, you're saying out loud the thing that I've been afraid to say for my entire life. So the two of us, we would spend the day at the pool and going to the playground and going to the boardwalk. And we were doing us, me and Colette. And uh, she's a girl after my heart. And I can't, I just wanted to say that. And, and really, like, what is the lesson here? I guess it's that you have to be willing to set boundaries for yourself. And, and that this idea of like, you know, getting outside your comfort zone. Uh, no, thank you. You know, sometimes being within your comfort zone is everything, especially when you're, the point is to be on a vacation, to be relaxed and to enjoy yourself. And so I, for the first time in my entire life, gave myself permission to not go to the beach. And thank you to my daughter for playing on my team. You know, in life, sometimes you just have to do you, set your boundaries, play within your comfort zone. That's happiness. So yeah, the beach, I don't know. Maybe if I'm not with my kids and there's white glove service and I'm in a nice shaded area, I don't know. I digress. Our questions this week are really good. And we have questions about whether or not it's worth it to get remarried later in life when maybe you were counting on your ex's social security kicking in, but you're in a new relationship and there's a proposal, but like, I don't know, is this really the right move financially? And even that question might feel a little icky, but we're here to answer it. A lot of divorce questions this week. Another listener is going through a divorce and planning to buy out her husband's equity, but it would potentially deplete her savings. So she's asking me about what's the best strategy and lots more to come. But first, let's go to the iTunes review section and pick our reviewer of the week. This person 
Like every week, we'll get a free 15-minute money session with me. This week, we're going to say thank you to TDP510. TDP 510 on July 7th. I started listening to Farnoosh in April of 2020 as I, as my walking buddy during the pandemic. And so money has yet to disappoint. I've gone back and listened to many of the past episodes and they still ring true and relevant. Most recently, Farnoosh interviewed Mercy Thomas on understanding financial abuse. And it really struck home for me. It wasn't until I listened to that episode that I was finally able to verbalize what occurred to me in a previous relationship in terms of actually being financially abused. Knowing there is a podcaster addressing topics from cryptocurrency to investing to managing finances as a couple just makes me want to listen more. Please keep the incredible content coming. Well, thank you so much. And that was a really important episode, I thought, too. Uh, If anyone has yet to listen to that episode, it was back in June we spoke with Mercy Thomas. It was a part of a partnership that uh, So Money had with the Allstate Foundation, which is committed to supporting survivors of domestic abuse. And I learned that 96% of domestic abuse survivors experience financial abuse. And sometimes it's the sort of thing that isn't super apparent, like this reviewer stated, like it, it, it's, it can be subtle, but it is paralyzing and dangerous. And um Thank you to Mercy for coming on the show and talking about her personal experience. I just got off the phone this week with a listener who won a a previous free 15-minute money session, and I I could sense that she was down on herself. She hadn't yet bought her home that she was hoping to have bought by this, you know, age in her life. She's in her early 30s. She's a mom. She runs a business. There's a lot that she has going on. But, you know, for a lot of different reasons, the home hasn't happened yet. One is that, you know, her husband's job isn't super stable. She's running a business. They just had a kid. And of course, the pandemic has led to a frenzy, a buying frenzy in the market. And that's really taken prices to the moon. And so for all these reasons, they are a bit of in a holding pattern and it's bumming her out. And I was like, listen, you have to let things play out. And you're not a failure. You know, look at you. You got a business. You're a mother. You listen to this podcast. You have your head in the right place. And Buying a home is no small decision. And and if this is something that you want to do because you simply feel that it's going to make you feel like a financial adult, that should not be the only reason you do it, right? You should do it because it makes sense for you and your family. If you're an entrepreneur and your husband doesn't have a stable job yet, that's not an ideal picture for buying a home yet. But you will get there if that's what you want. You've got to reverse engineer it, give it time. The market is wackadoo right now. Unless you are ready to buy with cash in the bank and lots of cash and willing to pay crazy above asking prices, you might be in the running, maybe. It's a nutso what I'm seeing out here. I looked at some of the recent home sales. Now that you know the summer is underway, you get to see some of the spring buying activity and the closings. If you go on Zillow, you can see what things actually closed at versus what the asking price was. And I cannot believe what I'm seeing. You know, these homes that were listed for, you know, $700,000, $800,000, going for like $1.5 million. And I think to myself, what bank is approving these? These homes are not appraising. So a lot of these buyers are probably coming with tons of cash, tons of down payment money. It's just a rabid market out there. Godspeed to anyone right now trying to buy a house. Now, speaking 
of real estate, let's skip to this question that we have here from Lane, who wrote in, uh, reached me on Instagram. You know, you can always reach me on Instagram. You can direct message me there. My handle is at Farnoosh Tarabi. Follow me, then direct message me. That's where I source a lot of these questions. So Lane says she's going through a divorce, planning to buy out her husband's equity, which is about $70,000. She has enough to do it in cash, but admittedly, it would deplete her emergency fund and other savings. Alternatively, she could just tack it on to the refinance, the required refinance, because I guess, you know, she's going to be assuming uh, the entire mortgage now in the divorce and just tack it on to the mortgage. What would you recommend? I like plan B. I like plan B of refinancing, tacking on his equity to the mortgage. You now coming out of a divorce, the last thing you want to be is house rich, cash poor, right? Uh, savings is always important, uh, particularly when you are you know, going through a transition like you are here. And I'm not sure what your work situation is, how quickly you'd be able to replenish those savings. But I think it's important that you do not compromise your emergency fund simply to have a smaller mortgage, especially now with interest rates so low, it, the borrowing cost is not that high. It's not as high as it would be, say, five years ago. Later on down the road, if you wanted to pay down the mortgage more to earn back some of that equity, uh, great. But I think right now, this is such a pivotal time in your life. Cash is queen. Go with refinancing and tacking it onto the mortgage. All right, next, a question from Sarah, who inherited an IRA from her father due to his passing. She says, I, I'm not really sure what to do with this. Uh, from what I know, my father had an IRA set up and I've been instructed to receive it as an inherited IRA. I understand that I'm going to have to take out the funds at the 10-year mark, but why couldn't I just keep it in an IRA? Wouldn't I want to keep it in an IRA to have it continue its growth? Yeah, Sarah, that would make a lot of sense, but there are specific rules around inherited IRAs. The specific rules related to inherited IRAs make it so that you can't just transfer it over to an existing IRA. There was a recent law signed in late 2019 regarding inherited IRAs and beneficiaries of IRAs. And the rule is that now if you receive an IRA from a beneficiary uh, who died after December 2019, December 31st, 2019, then you, what you need to do is take that IRA, convert it into what's called a inherited IRA, essentially, and you must deplete that IRA within 10 years of that previous account owner's death. And there are no rules around, you know, how much you can withdraw, how frequently, but it just needs to all be finished by the 10-year mark. You can um, withdraw it all at once if you want. You can leave it there for 10 years. You can take distributions over the years. But just know that with every withdrawal, it is counted as income. And then you'll be paying taxes on that in the year that you make the withdrawal. So just an FYI. There are exceptions, though, if you inherited an IRA from your spouse, if you're a minor child, if you're disabled. Uh, there are lots of different rules around this. And I always like to go to sites like nerdwallet.com, bankrate.com, nextadvisor.com. These are a lot of great personal finance sites that break it down very, very clearly. But unfortunately, you can't continue to contribute to this particular inherited IRA money. So you just have to deal with it as is and make sure you withdraw it within 10 years. 
All right. Julie has a question. She says, I am divorced after a 26 year marriage in which my husband was the breadwinner. He made a substantial amount of money annually, typically 300 to $600,000 during these years. I'm facing a head versus heart dilemma, says Julie. My serious and great boyfriend of two years has asked me to marry him. The timing was a surprise earlier than I expected, and we haven't had in-depth financial conversations yet. He's not aware of the social security benefit money that I would stand to lose. The practical side of me is screaming, no, do not give up the social security benefits that you'll be eligible to collect. And my heart is saying, if you want this legal union, get married. Uh, The rule is that once you get married, you're no longer eligible to collect benefits from your ex. I guess the advice I'm asking, Farnoosh, is how do I explain to someone that I love that it might not be financially wise to get married? All right, Julie. So it sounds like you have made up your mind that you want to go with more of your practical side. And I am with you on this. Um, It's not romantic. And uh, some people, depending on their idea of marriage, would not be on board with this or would have a hard time understanding this position. But this is a very specific situation. Situation. This isn't me saying everybody who's entering a second marriage, don't go for the marriage because you might miss out on some social security benefits. But in your case, Julie, and I'll outline the reasons why I'm with you on this, and then I'll get into sort of how to break this to your partner. But one, you were married for 26 years. Okay. And I imagine you might have gotten married, even if you got married like at 25, you're in your you know, early 50s now and retirement is not, you know, 30 years away. It's it's not far away. And this may have been money that you were really counting on. You invested a lot of your years in that marriage and you as you explained your husband made substantial income. So I am guessing that these social security payments will be very helpful to you and you are probably, you know, to some extent counting on that. Marriage is not always financially beneficial. And in this case, there is this con, there is this trade-off of getting remarried and as a result of this, not being able to collect on your ex's social security. If you were getting remarried in your 20s, in your 30s, and you know you had a long new marriage ahead of you, and you were working, and your husband's working, and there's the opportunity to sort of out-earn what your initial spouse's social security would have benefited you, I'd say, you know, this is uh, not an issue to worry about. Get married. You'll probably end up making enough money between the two of you and then having a good social security benefit down the road. But in this case, you said 26 years and uh, he made a lot of money. So this is this is not a little bit of money that we're talking about. And the way that I think you want to present this to your partner, your new partner, is just the same way that you came and you told me about it with complete honesty and transparency. You've not talked about money really yet with your partner. So get on that. And I don't know if you've said yes to this proposal, if you said, hold on, let me talk to Farnoosh. But I think it would behoove the both of you before you get engaged and start making wedding plans, if even that's where you're headed, to talk about your finances. And I don't know if your partner is coming to the marriage or to this relationship with an ex of his own, children, if there is a situation where you're blending families, this really requires a conversation, many conversations. And I would even consider working with a financial advisor to help the two of you figure out how to create various accounts, 
so that you're protected, he's protected, you can still have maybe a joint account. By the way, you can do all of this without getting married. I've written about how partners, because these days, you know, people don't want to get married. They want to be with somebody for the foreseeable future. They want to be in committed relationships, but the idea of marriage doesn't really sit well with them for various reasons. So you still want to protect yourself. You want to protect the union and you can create your own contracts that are what I call these like no nuptials, you know, where you're not actually creating a prenuptial because there's no marriage, but you can create a contract that outlines what would happen in the event of a breakup, what should happen during the relationship as far as who pays for what and kind of getting all of that written out, drafted, so that the two of you can use it as a reference point throughout the relationship in case one of you forgets or there's any miscommunication. Is it the most romantic thing? No. But I'll never forget when Erin Lowry, who's the author of Broke Millennial, and she's written many books in that series, one of them about how to have you know, sticky conversations about money with your loved ones. So maybe you want to check out her book. But I remember she came on the show back in uh, January, I think it was. And she said, We often forget that marriage is a huge contract. You're entering into a partnership and you sign a legal document. You get a marriage license. This is not just, you know, saying your vows in front of your loved ones. It is a major piece of paper that you sign and it has many, many implications that we often don't know about until it's too late. So take a breath. I'm happy for you that you are in this new relationship and it's going so well. And to continue having it go so well, you want to talk about money and be transparent and and, and tell him how much money this is, you know, and, and how this money could support you, potentially support the both of you at some point. If he loves you and he understands, hopefully he will see how the two of you can continue to be in a committed relationship without this legal piece of paper. You can still have a union ceremony, but getting married legally will, as you know, disqualify you from getting this uh, social security payment from your ex. I like to think of myself as a romantic, but I I also think in this case, the practical, the financial end of this scenario supersedes the romantic notion of, you know, getting married and getting that marriage license. You can still have a happy life together. Many people are without that piece of paper. And then as a result of that, you being more financially well off. I want to turn now to a comment that was left on Instagram in my DMs, uh, John Andre. It's just a comment that I thought was really uh, great and inspiring, and I wanted to share it with everybody. And it's about a recent episode that he listened to, and I hope that you've caught it as well, on how to be a feminist dad. Did you hear that one? It was with Jordan Shapiro. I believe it was last week. And John says, hey, Farnish, I want to say I really enjoyed the how to be a feminist dad episode. I'm a father of a 10-year-old boy and a 5-year-old old girl. My 10-year-old boy, Miles, I try to make sure to let him be in touch with his feelings and see girls and women as equal to boys and men. My five-year-old daughter, Kira, is tougher for me. I realize the clothing industry sells lots of pink and people tend to want to tell her she is beautiful. While nice, I also want them to tell her she is smart, like her brother. So lots of conversations about how to guide them both through childhood without 
pigeonholing them. I work in IT and at a local credit union. We need more women, trans people, and more diversity. I love the efforts to teach girls to code and want to push my kids to both do so if they like it. I really enjoy your podcast. Thanks for all you do. Great voices like yours helped me make it through COVID. Oh, this is so great, John. And there's so much that you can't control in the world, but the good work that you're doing of instilling these values in your kids and these belief systems around what they're capable of, which is everything, and 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 reminding them that uh, while they're good looking, they're also you know they got good brains, and uh, the, there's more to life than you know just taking a cute selfie and wearing a cute shirt. I mean, that's the thing, right? That as a parent, it's hard, right, to combat a lot of the social influences. And your kids go to school, they go out in the world, and you can't control what other people say to them. But I do believe that so much of what shapes us is what happens at home. You know, 90% of it is going to be your influence and the upbringing, the, the community, the culture that you expose them to. I think, you know, ultimately that they're going to grow up and make their own decisions. But as you've been listening to this podcast, you know that so many guests have revealed the foundation, the foundational values that they got from growing up, you know, good and bad. But I just want to encourage you and and say, keep at it. Your kids are lucky to have you. That episode for me also was really helpful, you know, to think more broadly and more expansively about what it means to be a feminist, not only as a parent, but as just a person walking the earth, right? And what it means to be not just a feminist dad, but a feminist mother. You know, I thought that I grew up with a very feminist dad and perhaps for the time, the era he was, you know, he led me to believe that I could do anything I wanted and talked to me about money as if I was a, a young boy and told me to negotiate. And so for me, my dad was super feminist, but, you know, fast forward to 2021, well, the way that my father raised me is just sort of like the first layer. You know, there's so many more layers to how you can raise uh, a child to see the world through a more equitable lens, um, whether you're raising a daughter or a son. And, and I think, you know, that's the work that continues and why books like Jordan's and his book is called Father Figure. It, you know, these books are important because uh, the learning continues. The learning continues. So thanks so much for sharing that with me, John. And finally, before we go, let's answer Heather's question about where to put her retirement funds. So here's her question. She says, hey, Farnoosh, I found your podcast last year after paying off all my debt and I have been hooked. Well, congratulations, Heather. So happy for you. She says, I love the variety of financial topics you discuss. It helps my midnight work shift go by that much faster. Oh my goodness. Midnight work. Yikes. My question is, What should I focus on next with regards to my retirement savings? I have an HSA. I have a 457B. I also have a 401k. My husband also has a 401k. I'm trying to, Max, I'm trying to contribute 15% of my income every year. Uh, I have 3% left that I have yet to allocate. I'm a government employee with a pension, which my company and I contribute to, and I cannot add any more to the pension. So the pension's out. The pension you can't put any more money towards. I have a Roth and a traditional IRA, which I max out every year. All right, so that's check, 
I have an HSA, which I take a full match for each year, but I can add more to the HSA. I'm currently not investing in the HSA. The money's just sitting there as out-of-pocket money for the year. FYI, we're both healthy. And there's an option for a 457B at my job that I haven't opened. Also, my husband maxes out his IRA and he has a healthy 401k, but he's not maxing it out yet. I don't plan on retiring with this job. Outside of all of this, we're saving to buy a house in 2023. So Heather, I'm kind of intrigued by this 457B option that your employer is offering you. You know, you have an HSA, you have a pension, you have, I believe you said a Roth and a traditional IRA. Gosh, I'm, I'm so blown away by just how much you are doing towards retirement and all the diversification here. But I think a 457B would be a nice complement to everything that you have going on here. It's essentially your version of a 401k. When you're a government employee, you don't get a 401k, but you might get a 457b, which is essentially a similar type of retirement account. Your contributions reduce your taxable income. You can invest, I believe, up to the same amount as a 401k. This year, it's about $19,500. So it has a lot of the tax advantages of a 401k. And so if you're looking for a way to save, to take that 3% and really maximize it from a tax standpoint, the 457 for you could be the place to do it. Additionally, I like the 457B idea because while pensions are great, you know, they run risks. There could be a bankruptcy situation behind the scenes. There could be mismanagement. Um, It's always helpful to have an account outside of a pension that you control, that you govern. Not to say that money in a 457B is protected or safeguarded from volatility in the stock market, but you know what I'm saying, right? That it's always helpful to be a little bit more in control of your financial future. A pension is wonderful if all works out, but to simply bank on that, and you're not, you know, you got the IRAs, but the ideal thing to do with this 3% extra money is to put it somewhere where it will be tax optimized. And a 457 would be a great place for that. Your husband has the 401k too, but let him contribute to his own 401k. I'm saying use your money for your own retirement and let him use his money for his retirement. You're both working. You both can do this. So stay in your own retirement lane and look into that 457B. I think that could be a great place to go next. And that's our show for this Friday, everybody. Thank you for your questions. As a reminder, you can leave me a question on Instagram. You can tweet me at Farnoosh. You can, gosh, email me, Farnoosh at somoneypodcast.com. And of course, always go to the website, somoneypodcast.com and click on Ask Farnoosh, leave a voicemail type your question. And if you're enjoying what you're listening to, leave a review because as you listened to earlier, I will pick a reviewer of the week every week to get a free 15 minute money session with me. Enjoy your weekend, everybody. See you back here on Monday when our guest is going to be Annabelle Gerwich, comedian Annabelle Gerwich. She has a new book out called You're Leaving When? Adventures in Downward Mobility. Stay tuned. I hope your weekend is so money. Money.